Welcome everyone to Sunday Night Bible Fellowship. We're glad that you have connected with us online and uh, have joined us as we uh, continue our verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of Luke. We are in Luke chapter 19. We will be taking a look at verses 41 through 48. Luke 19, 41 to 48, if you want to open your Bibles to that section of Scripture, or just follow us online on the screen as we put it up as we go along through these verses. Put the title of this message as Tears of the Messiah. Tears of the Messiah. So, let's take a look, jump right into it. Verse 41 says, When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city, and he wept over it. So, the question is, he's approaching Jerusalem now. We saw that last time when we talked about his entrance, coming over the top, coming out of Bethany, cresting over the top of the Mount of Olives, coming down, crossing the Kidron Valley, coming up, going through the Eastern Gate. And, of course, he's got a throng of people that are following him. Perhaps, certainly, tens of thousands, if not perhaps a couple hundred thousand that are following him as he comes down and comes into Jerusalem. And they are celebrating him. They're laying down palm branches. They're laying down their coats. He is on a colt. And they are praising him. They're exclaiming Hosanna, giving him adoration and praise. But of course, Jesus knew that this was all very, very superficial. It was not sincere. Why do we say that? Well, just in a few days, they're going to turn on him and they are going to cry out for his blood. So we know this isn't real. This is just a very emotional response because they believe that he is coming to set up the millennial kingdom on earth. And so they are excited about this. It's Passover. They're thinking in their minds, this is an excellent time for him to do this. And so therefore, they're praising him not for who he is, the Messiah. They're praising him for what he's going to do, which is defeat Rome, which is establish the kingdom, which is to bring peace to Israel. So we see him approaching Jerusalem, as it says here. He saw the city and he wept over it. I just want to make a clarification because some say, well, he was weeping because of his coming suffering on the cross. So therefore, he was overburdened, let's say, with the suffering that he would occur in just a few days on the cross. That's not why he's weeping. He's weeping over Jerusalem itself. It says it very plainly here. He saw the city and he wept over it. Interesting word, the word wept that's used here, a clio. It's a word which means to sob, to wail aloud. Of all the words that are used in the Greek language, this is probably the strongest word that's used. If you go back to, I think it's John 11:35, where Jesus wept over Lazarus. 
that's a much milder word that's used. This one here means to sob. It means to wail aloud. When Jesus takes a look at Jerusalem, he is wailing aloud. And what Jesus saw as he looked at Jerusalem, it really literally broke his heart. And he did this, we've got to remember what we've just been talking about, in the midst of a grand entrance into Jerusalem, with Israel shouting and praising him. you got tens of thousands of people laying down their coats, exclaiming, Hosanna to the king. But Jesus, you see, saw through their superficiality, their shallowness, their fickleness. He was not fooled by it. And this is, by the way, what real discernment is. Discernment isn't fool. Discernment is able to take a look at a situation or take a look at people and see through them and see in actuality what is going on. Jesus knew what was going on here. He was not excited by the fact that the people were ecstatic about him and him being there because he knew they were doing that based on a false understanding of who he was and what he came to do. Now, we want to take a look in this passage today of four reasons why Jesus wept. Four reasons why he wept. So, starting at verse 42, Jesus says to Israel, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. Number one reason why Jesus wept, Jesus wept over Israel's past rejection of the Messiah, of himself, the Messiah. It says here, if you had known in this day, we're not talking here about head knowledge. They had plenty of head knowledge. Jesus has been going up and down the land all over Israel, preaching, teaching. Word has spread. They knew exactly what he was saying. They had head knowledge. He's not saying if you had known, if you had the facts about this. He's not saying that. What he's talking about, he's talking about heart knowledge. It's talking about knowing the Messiah in your heart, receiving him. If they had received and approved what they knew, they would have had peace because they would have repented and they would have put their faith and trust in Christ as their Messiah, as their Savior. So the peace we're talking about here, it's not national peace or any other kind of peace. This is the peace that comes from salvation, from repenting and believing in the Messiah. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is really clear here in Romans 5.1 as to what peace we're talking about. We're not talking about just bringing peace to a nation, peace to a situation. We're talking about every individual in this world who, through justification by faith, then has peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the thing that Israel failed to do. They failed to put their faith and trust in the Messiah, which would have made them at peace with God. Billy Graham put out a little booklet kind of 
after the four spiritual laws, only he called it four steps to peace with God. And that's what we're talking about here. And Jesus is saying the things which make for peace. Peace meaning peace between you and your Messiah. Then the end of verse 42 says, But now they have been hidden from your eyes. So number two, Jesus wept over Israel's present blindness as he heads towards the cross. As he moves towards the cross during this week, he is weeping over their present blindness. You'll notice the word, but now. The beginning of verse 42, if you had known. That's past tense. But now, present tense, they have been hidden from your eyes. So Jesus spent three years going all around Israel, teaching and preaching the truth about salvation, but he was largely rejected. There were a few who came to know him, but by and large, the crowds that followed and so on, they followed out of interest, they followed out of curiosity, but they did not follow out of commitment. So you do that for three years, there comes a time when rejection will turn to judgment. There is always a window of time that you have in order to receive Christ, receive the gift of salvation, but at a particular point when you continue to reject and reject and reject, the door will suddenly slam. So, I put down three illustrations here. You look at Noah. In the days of Noah, from the time that God said to begin building the ark till the time that the first raindrop fell, 120 years. There's a window of opportunity for those people living on the earth. Noah is preaching to, and Noah is telling them judgment is coming. They had 120 years to repent. They did not repent. Noah and his family were the only ones that went into the ark. The door was closed. Sorry, that's, that's all the time you get. It's over with at this point. Or we go to Jeremiah, for instance. Jeremiah. The book of Jeremiah is about Jeremiah preaching judgment to Israel. Telling them, if you do not repent, if you do not turn Judgment is going to fall upon Israel. He did that for 40 years. There was a 40-year window for them to repent and to turn, and they did not do so. And judgment fell. The Babylonian army came in, surrounded it, and took over Israel and killed its inhabitants. And that's what the book of Lamentations, you'll remember, is all about. We went through that book verse by verse took a look at it, starts out in a very ominous way, just Jeremiah looking at the city, seeing a city that was once filled with people, but how lonely this city is right now, Jeremiah is saying. There are no people. It's gone. It's devastated. There's nothing left. And so Lamentations spends the whole time just talking about and lamenting over the fact that Israel failed to repent and therefore judgment came and this is what happened. And then of course you've got Jesus who was on this earth for three years 
and preaching and teaching and telling about salvation and don't reject me, accept me, receive me, and put your faith and your trust in me. And if you do not do that, judgment's going to fall. Then came the church age after that. And for 40 years, the church was here. And the apostles, and you got Paul, and all these who were there, who continued to preach and to teach and so on, all the way through that 40-year period until judgment fell. Israel had an opportunity to turn to their Messiah And over those 40 years, they did not do so, nor did they do so during the three years that Christ was here, by and large. Few did. Few did during the beginning of the church age there in the book of Acts, 3,000 on the day of Pentecost. But by and large, the big majority of them did not do it. Judgment fell in 70 AD. We'll see that in just a minute. So if you choose blindness, God will accommodate you with permanent blindness. If you say to God, I want to stay blind, I reject the light that you are giving to me, God says, I can accommodate that. Okay, I'll give you permanent blindness. That's what you want. This is what you will get. Pentecost was only a small token of those of Israel who would be saved. You say, what? But Dick, there was 3,000 that became Christians on the day of Pentecost. Yeah, there were, but do you know how many Jews were in Jerusalem at that time for Pentecost? Maybe a couple million. 3,000 was a small, small number. Seems big to us. Seems like a tremendous evangelistic response to the gospel, Peter giving his message on the day of Pentecost. But in actuality, very small percentage of the Jew that was there that had come for the day of Pentecost. So Jesus weeps over the present blindness as he heads toward the cross. And at this point, God has had it. He has shut it down. He is hiding the truth of how they can obtain peace from your eyes, it says, from their eyes, from Israel's eyes. And they've crossed over the mark. Jesus is weeping over that. Jesus is saddened by the fact that they would, as a nation, would not turn to him, but instead would continue to reject him. Okay, let's go on to verses 43 and 44. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will level you to the ground and your children within you, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Okay, so Jesus wept. Number three here, Jesus wept over Israel's future judgment in 70 AD. So now we move from the past. We move from the present, and now we move to the future. And Jesus is weeping over the fact that there is going to come judgment in about 40 years. A judgment that is absolutely going to wipe out Jerusalem, wipe out Israel in Jerusalem, the city itself. So this describes that monumental event that took place in 70 A.D. 
I talk a lot about 70 AD, and people say, well, where do you find that in Scripture? Well, here it is, right here. This is a description of the days that will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you. This is exactly what happened. And why did it happen? Well, because in 66 AD, Israel rebels against Rome. Rome's not going to put up with rebellion. So Titus and his Roman soldiers, they surround Jerusalem with a barricade, shutting off food and water to the city. They shut it off. And that's all you had to do in that time. And you would starve a city. And this lasted for about five months. So many starved to death, and others were so weak that they could not fight physically. So this made for a very easy slaughter by the Romans. And once they broke through the walls, the soldiers ravaged the city, killing hundreds of thousands. And as it says here, we're talking men, women, children, infants. It did not matter. Josephus, the historian who lived during that time, estimated that about one million Jews were killed. And this was God's judgment upon Israel. This is what happens when you reject the Messiah. It was so bad, in fact, it is told that Rome ran out of wood to build crosses to execute Jews on. Ran out of wood. In fact, it also says that there was no room in Jerusalem to put the crosses, to put them up. They ran out of room. I mean, you're talking a million people. So it was absolutely devastating destruction of Jerusalem. It was, it took place like over five months. People starved to death. As with the book of Lamentations, with Israel back then, you had mothers who were boiling their babies for food. I mean, it was, it was so tragic what they were doing, and they were so desperate, but they would not turn to their Messiah. So Jerusalem was leveled. Rome burned it all down. All that was left is the Wailing Wall or the Western Wall, a section of it, just a section. We'll see that in a minute on a slide. A couple of verses to begin with, just to talk about this before we get to the slide. Proverbs 29.1 says, A man who hardens his neck after much reproof will suddenly be broken beyond remedy. This is what Israel had done. They had hardened their necks after they had received much reproof that they needed to turn and accept and receive their Messiah in order to avoid judgment. They did not do so. Judgment came. So it says, will suddenly be broken beyond remedy. Romans 11.22 says, Behold then the kindness and the severity of God. We like to think of God as a loving, kind, merciful individual. But this verse says, but there's another side to God, and that's his severity. And when he decides to judge, it's not going to be a pretty sight. When you take a look at what happened to Jerusalem back in 70 AD, and God gave them every chance to repent, and they did not repent. In fact, they rebelled against Rome, and... 
God used that in order to bring judgment upon Israel. And all of this was done because Israel did not recognize the visitation of their Messiah. Notice verse 44, And they will level you to the ground and your children within you, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. That's a phrase that's used in the Old Testament, and it has to do with the visitation of God as he comes to his people. Well, you've got the ultimate of that, because God came to his people in the person of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And they did not recognize him as the Messiah, and believe him, and receive him. And so judgment fell judgment fell. It's a tragic thing when that happens and when people delay in their acceptance of salvation and Jesus Christ. Oswald Smith gave this following example. Satan and his demons were having a convocation seeing what they were going to do to damn the world. And one of the demons said, well, let's say there's no God. Another demon said, no, that's too obvious. There is a God and he's just, and he's a holy God. Well then, said another demon, let's tell them that he is a just and a holy God, and he'll not receive them. But another said, no, he's also a God of mercy. Well then, another demon said, let's tell them there is a God, he's just and holy, and full of mercy, but let's just tell them there's plenty of time. In other words, there's no rush. So it goes back to the old cliche that the road to hell is paved with good intentions. A lot of people put off salvation. They put off coming to Christ as Savior. And as a result, they die. And they never do it. Let me just give you some examples that I came upon this week. There was a prayer meeting in western Washington where they are logging. A man is confronted with the gospel and he said, I will attend to the matter when I am through hauling logs in one month. Four weeks to the day, he was swimming in Lake Tacoma, and with profanity on his lips, he drowned. Opportunity passed. He was one month too late. Another lady could not fall asleep. She wrote in her diary, Next week, I will attend to the salvation of my soul. That lady died the next day. She was one week too late. A lady in New York City went to a revival meeting with her parents, and she was under conviction. She said to them, I will seek God tomorrow night. Yet on the next night, she decided to go to a dance rather than go back to the revival crusade. She was sitting at her dressing table putting a ribbon in her hair when she fell over dead. She was one day too late. Another lady in New York City was in a revival crusade. She was with her aunt. Her Christian aunt pled with her to give her heart to Jesus Christ, and she refused. On the way from the revival crusade, she was in a tragic accident, and she died. She was one hour too late. You know, opportunity passes. The fact of death is certain. The time of death is uncertain. This was their opportunity. They had a golden opportunity. Jesus said, if you only knew the things that belong to you in this, your day. So you do not want to delay. 
If this is the day of visitation, Hebrews tells us, today is the day of salvation. If you're listening to this today and you have not put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, boy, I beg of you to do so. I do it because you do not know if you have tomorrow. You don't know if you've got another hour. These people fully expected to live beyond when they died. And then they thought they would deal with it. Well, you know, you don't play games with God. And there's coming a time for everybody living on this earth when people on this earth who have not received Christ, they're going to face judgment. Steve Lawson in a message said this, quote, When he comes, when Christ comes, he is not coming to play games. He is not coming to be docile. He is coming to dominate. He is coming to slaughter. He is the King of kings and he is the Lord of lords. And at the end of this age, he will bolt out of heaven on a white steed and his garments are dipped in blood, the blood of his own enemies. And he is coming back to conquer and to damn. You need to make terms of peace with this coming king or you will be subjected to damnation forever. And Jesus Christ has made terms of peace. You need to settle out of court with him. You do not want to go into that final day of conflict with Christ, for he will be ruthless in his execution of his justice. But he offers you mercy today. He will agree to terms of surrender. He will agree to terms of peace. But they are his terms of peace, not ours. End quote. Steve is right. You refuse Christ in this life and you stand before him someday, he will be ruthless in his condemnation, in his execution, and you will spend an eternity in hell. But today, right now, the window is still open. It's still open for you to make that decision for Christ, to repent of your sin and to put your faith and trust in Christ as Savior. And that's part of the message of what we're looking at here in this passage. Don't delay. Don't put it off. Do it right now. Make sure that you know Christ as Savior, that you've received him. Here, uh, the next slide then, here is a picture of the temple of the first century. And just to show you, you've got two blue lines coming down kind of to the right of the halfway point. And that section down below where you see all the stones, that was the section that you'll see today over in Jerusalem, which is called now the Wailing Wall. Many of you have have been to that wall. And that wall is there as a reminder of God's judgment, of his destruction of Jerusalem. Look, God, when God says something, God means something. When he says destruction will fall, it will fall. God delayed for 40 years. Israel had a chance to repent. They did not do so. The city was leveled. You got a part of a wall standing. On the next slide, here's a picture of the Wailing Wall. About a third of that is original that goes up, big stones, and the top two-thirds, half to two-thirds have been added. A stone to it. But it's a reminder. And therefore, on this, on this next slide, you see Jews come to this wall. 
They come to the wall and they they mourn and they weep and they beg of God to restore the wall, to restore Jerusalem, to restore Israel, to bring peace. They come and they bring their prayers. You'll notice in the crevices, you'll see notes that have been tucked in, prayers that have been made. And they come to mourn and to perhaps weep that God would do something. But you know what? God's not going to do anything because you've got to first make peace with your Messiah. That's what this is saying. You can come to that wall, you can weep, you can mourn, you can, you can spend hours and hours begging God to restore Israel, begging God to bring peace to Israel. But you can't do that and reject the one who can make peace in your heart, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, moving on then, the judgment continues. If you take a look at Romans 11:22, as we said, behold then the kindness and severity of God. This judgment that is Israel is under, I just put a couple of things at the bottom of this slide, and that is this judgment continues to this day. To this day, Israel is still under judgment. When will that judgment be lifted? When you get to the end of the tribulation period. When they finally recognize, as Zechariah says, as they see the one that they have pierced, the one that they have killed, and they see him now as the fact that he is their Messiah. When they finally come and recognize that, then peace will come to Israel as they are ushered into the millennial kingdom, the thousand-year reign of Christ upon the earth. But there will be no peace. So what Israel has gone through throughout its history And even since Jesus walked the face of the earth and time and time again, the slaughter of Jews, the Holocaust, six million Jews, war after war after war, we're in one today. Hamas, you got Hezbollah, you got all of this that's going on against Israel. And it's all part and parcel of the fact that there will be no peace in Israel till they make peace with the Prince of Peace, who is the Lord Jesus Christ, until they can possibly recognize him as their Messiah. The message is, don't delay. It may be too late. Judgment is coming. It came for Israel. It will come for you as well, unless you turn your life over to Christ. Verse 45, Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling saying to them, It is written, And my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a robber's den. So this is the fourth and final reason why Jesus was weeping. Jesus wept over the corruption of his house. I see in this passage this all ties together. And certainly he is thinking, as he sits there and he looks at Jerusalem, he sees what has happened to his house, to the temple. He is weeping over that because of the corruption that has set in. So he entered the temple and he began to drive out those who were selling. Now, what were they selling and why were they selling it on Passover? Well, on Passover, people would bring their animals to be sacrificed. And those animals would be brought, typically, to a priest who would inspect them. And then those animals, without spot or blemish, would be sacrificed 
all prefiguring, of course, Jesus Christ, who was without spot and blemish, Jesus the Messiah. Well, they would do that. The priest would look at them. If they looked okay, great. Then let's bring them to the place of slaughter and sacrifice them. Well, the temple court of the Gentiles, I've got a diagram of that we'll show in just a minute here, but the temple court of the Gentiles became a corrupt area where people were charged exorbitant prices to buy their animals from approved vendors who ran shops. And that's the problem. That became the problem. All right, so on the next slide, you'll see what we're talking about here. You've got the temple itself right in the center of this, but you've got a court that runs on the outside called the Court of the Gentiles. All right, this is where Israel would sell franchises to people who raised sheep or pigeons, doves, that type of thing that could be sacrificed. All right, and they would buy a franchise to be inside there to have a shop, a table set up. And so what would happen, how this became so corrupt, is the fact that they would bring their animals that they brought from home that they thought they could sacrifice. The priest was in on this whole thing, and he wouldn't approve the animal. Regardless of how clean the animal was, without spot or blemish, he'd turn it down. What did that force them to do? The priest would say, well, you've got to buy one of our animals. And then they would charge exorbitant prices for that animal. So this is how this whole thing became so corrupt. One other thing on this drawing here, and that is you'll notice on the left-hand side, almost down in the corner, it says Western Wall. So there you see out of the entire temple area, you see where the Western Wall is located. And those of you who've been there, that's where you were standing, is that section that is the Western Wall, and now called the Wailing Wall. So. People brought their animals to be inspected by the priest. The priest would then reject the animals, and the people would have to buy their animals from a shop. So they would have to pay ten, somewhere around 10 to 20 times the going rate outside the court. So if you were outside of the temple area, and you bought, let's say, if you were poor and you bought a dove, you might pay 10 cents for it. If you go inside the area, you might pay a dollar all the way up to $10 they would charge you for that dove. Same way with sheep. Now, to show you what big business this was, it's estimated there were about 260,000 lambs sacrificed at, Pat at Passover. 260,000. Just figure these people who are charging these prices and people having to pay. There was a huge amount of money that could be made on this. Not only that, would they make money there, but then you've got the money changers. Okay, they charge 25% to exchange your money if you did not have the exact amount to make your purchase or to pay your temple tax, which you paid every year. And a lot of people haven't paid it. When they come to Passover, they've got to pay it. And if you don't have the right amount of money, and you need to exchange your money in some way, they're going to charge you 25% for it. If you don't have the right money to make the purchase of the animals, they're going to charge you 25%. Just, just horrible what they did. 
Annas and Caiaphas, they were the high priests. They ran the show of the temple. And as I said, they sold franchises to vendors. They became incredibly rich. And you see, that's something you always have to look out for. You have to look out for religion, which can become so corrupted it becomes nothing but a big money-making machine. See, Martin Luther faced this, right? In the 16th century, 1517, nails his thesis to the wall. He faced the situation with Roman Catholicism, religion. What were they doing? They were selling indulgences, okay, which was a piece of paper that Roman Catholicism would hand you and say, okay, for X amount of dollars, you pay us, and you'll be able to knock off some years you would have to spend in purgatory. And so people would do that, and they were selling indulgences like crazy. Martin Luther comes along and says, forget it. You can't knock off any time in hell. You're either in hell, and you're in there forever, or you're not in hell. But it has nothing to do with you paying any money at this point. Always got to be aware. Religion, at some point, is corrupt enough that it is out after the money. I'm not talking about true belief in Jesus Christ, the church, and so on. I'm talking about outside of that. Now, some of that even creeps into the church, doesn't it? And money becomes a big motivating factor. And greed within the church. Terrible. Psalm 27.4 says, One thing I have asked from the Lord, that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord, and notice, and to meditate in his temple. What was the temple for? The temple was for prayer. The temple was for meditation. The temple was for worship, for singing. Those were all the things that were to take place in the temple. Not filling the courtyard with tons of merchants who were there to rip you off. I mean, what a perversion of what the temple and the courtyard were designed for. Jeremiah 7.11 says, Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your sight? Behold, I, even I, have seen it, declares the Lord. So, you'll notice in verse 46, you've got in all caps, And my house shall be a house of prayer. And then you've got a robber's den. And it's all in caps, meaning this is a quote from the Old Testament, and it comes right from Jeremiah 7.11. Same thing was happening back there. Same thing is happening here. It's become a den of thieves. People who are robbing people of their money. All right, verses 47 and 48. So we close this out. 47 says... And Jesus was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests and scribes and leading among the people were trying to destroy him. I want to go back because I want to take a look at verse 45 before I go to 47 and 48, as I did not go through this. But in verse 45, it says, Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out all those who were selling. Okay, and so Jesus goes into the temple, and as it says in the other Gospels, he overturns the tables. Now, you have to understand in this area, in the court of the Gentiles, you've got, I can't tell you how many tables would have been sent up. I mean, would have been set up. In other words, you've got people who will buy franchises. Is that a lucrative thing to do? Oh, yeah. 
You bet. To buy, be able to buy a franchise, to be able to sit in there, to be able to sell people animals at totally jacked up prices and make a lot of money, sure. You might have 500, I don't know, 1,000 tables set up. I don't know. Jesus walks in here, and this is one of the most amazing things. One of the things that bothers me about when I see pictures of Christ, to me, boy, they better be masculine. I see a lot of effeminate pictures of Christ, and it frankly makes me sick to my stomach because Jesus was anything but an effeminate individual. He was a rugged, tough, muscular. He was a man's man. He was a carpenter. He was that kind of an individual. And to prove that, he walked into this temple. And he starts just overthrowing the tables, tossing people off their stools, knocking them over, money flying everywhere. Animals that were around were on the loose. And he drove all of these individuals out of the temple, all those who were manning these tables. I mean, it must have just frightened him to death to watch him do this and flip these tables one after another and money flying all over the place and whatever, and he drove them out of the temple. And they didn't try to stop him. I mean, he was a strong, strong individual. And when he wanted to exercise his strength, he would do so. When he came to the cross, he did not want to exercise his strength. He did not want to fight Rome or corrupt Israel. He gave himself over willingly. He gave himself up. But when it was time To do something like this, oh, you better believe he had the strength to do it. And so with that kind of a backdrop, then we go over then to verse 47, which says, and he was teaching daily in the temple. Okay, so Jesus continued teaching the gospel in spite of the mess. You can imagine what the mess was like all over the whole courtyard. Jesus had totally turned that whole place upside down. You got animals running loose. You got chaos almost, so to speak. In the midst of all that, when things had kind of settled down, Jesus begins to teach. You say, well, what does he teach? Well, if you go to the next chapter, chapter 20, verse 1, it says there, on one of the days while he was teaching, he only had three more days to teach before he was crucified. But on one of those days while he was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel. So he's preaching the gospel and he's doing it in spite of the mess. But what an illustration. What a environment to preach the gospel. You could sit there with the people listening and hanging on to your words. He could point out all the corruption that sin provides and inspires in a person's heart. Causes you to be corrupt and greedy and worship money and so on and so forth. He could point to all that as he's sitting there teaching the people. I mean, it's a great place to do it. You go into places, some of the best places to preach the gospel are the darkest places. The places where sin has abounded greatly. And you could go in with the light of the gospel and bring it to those who are there. Well, it says he was teaching daily in the temple. But the chief priests and scribes and the leading men among the people were trying to destroy him. We talked about the chief priests, Annas and Caiaphas, those were the the guys that ran the shops. They were the ones that were making the money. They were filthy rich. And then you had the scribes. They were the lawyers. They were the interpreters of the law. 
They're the ones that are coming after Jesus now. And what are they doing? They're coming after to destroy him. The word destroy that's used here, the Greek word apolumi, is a word which means to cause to perish, to cause to die. They're out after him. And they're just about to catch up to him and arrest him and put him to death. But they're out to destroy him here. But there's something that holds them back. These guys have a problem. And the problem is, right now, there's nothing they can do to Jesus because the people want to listen to Jesus, not destroy him. Okay? It says at the end of verse 48, For all the people were hanging on every word he said. Isn't that amazing? They wanted to hear the truth. And without the people, the chief priests, the scribes, the leaders, Pharisees, all the whole group, Sanhedrin, everybody that may be involved in the leadership, they have no ability to do anything. They would be overpowered by the people. You can't go against the people. Because we're talking here about masses of people that would totally overthrow the government. So they backed off. And so they couldn't find anything that they could do. We don't know what to do. We can't do anything. Our hands are tied. As long as these people are in on it, in on Jesus and want to listen to him, there's nothing we can do. Because the people were hanging on every word. I love that phrase, hanging on every word. Boy, that gives us pause in our own lives, doesn't it? As we think about when we study the Bible, do we hang on every word? Is it so exciting to us that we can actually read what the God of the universe has said to us? That when we come to the Bible, we just hang on every word because every word is important. Every word speaks to us, gives us instruction, gives us doctrine, gives us correction, gives us training in righteousness. All of it is important. Every part of the Bible is important. Everything that Jesus said was important. Everything that the Holy Spirit has inspired in the Bible is important. And therefore, we, like these people, we need to hang on those words. We need to see what is meant by what's being said, and then we need to apply it to our lives. Well, let's go to application. I, I put down here three applications. Number one, peace to Israel will only come when she makes peace with her Messiah. I hear a lot of people today, and they talk about, you know, oh, we're just praying that, that God will give peace to Israel. And my question is, why should he? They've turned their backs on him. They have rejected the Messiah. They ran a corrupt system to the point where Jesus finally had to say, here's what's going to happen to you. Judgment is coming. And it's, it's going to be a frightful situation when Titus and his Roman soldiers surround the city. They starve you to death and they execute you and put you to death those who are still alive, as they barge into the city. I mean, when God carries out judgment, let me tell you, it is, it is frightening. It is frightening. And Israel today is continually under the judgment of God. It has not been lifted and will not be lifted until the end of the tribulation period. In fact, in between there, there's another great big slap to God's face, and that is the beginning of the tribulation. What does Israel do? They sign a treaty with the Antichrist. Instead of falling in love with their Savior, their Messiah, 
They go the opposite direction and they follow the Antichrist. Well, sad situation. Israel needs to make peace with her Messiah. Number two, Israel in 33 AD was ripe for judgment for rejecting the gospel. And judgment fell 40 years later. Today, the United States is ripe for judgment for having rejected the message of the gospel. A gospel that has been proclaimed in this country like no other country. We have more Bibles. We have more literature, more gospel tracts being given out. We have radio. We have television. We have constantly the gospel being given out. And you take a look at our society and where we're headed and the immorality and the rejection of of the gospel and of the Bible. And all you can say is we're headed for judgment. The only question is, how soon will we fall? How soon will we fall? We say, well, what about the church? Well, the church wraps itself up into all kinds of secular causes and, and things, politics, whatever. Wraps itself all up, gets so involved in it, they've totally lost who their Savior is, what the gospel is, and what their mission is to bring that to people. I don't care whether you're Republican or Democrat or independent, or whatever you are. You view all those people as sinners that need a Savior, that need the gospel. To do anything less than that is to have compromised yourself with the world itself. And so we say, how soon will it fall? The way it's heading. And I go back to our study in the book of Revelation, and we covered it and spent some time talking about Where is the United States in prophecy? Well, you can't find in the Old Testament any talk of it, any possible reference to it. You can't find it in the book of Revelation. What happens to it? Well, right now, the way it's heading, it's just going to implode from within. It's going to destroy itself. That's the way we're going. How soon will we fall? That's the only question. Number three. No church is immune from becoming a den of thieves. Churches meet to pray, to worship, to sing, to teach, and to fellowship. It's not about money-making schemes. It's not about competition with other churches and how much money can we pour into this and pour into that so that we can look bigger and better than everybody else and spend more money, and we need to raise more money, and money, 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 it becomes. And there is no church that's immune to it. So every church has to be under the authority of the Word of God. They have to be coming and meeting together for the purpose of prayer and worship, singing, teaching, and fellowship. Those are the building blocks that the church finds itself upon. Well, let's pray. Father, another great passage of Scripture. Passage of Scripture that is so real to us because it has so much application to us today in the world in which we live. We, we ourselves ought to take a look at this world in which we live and we need to weep. We need to weep For the condition the world's in, we need to weep for the condition that our country's in. 
We need to weep the condition of our government is in. And we need to weep for the condition the church is in. Jesus was a real man, but he wept. He was a strong, mighty person, but yet he broke down and he cried over the sin that was in Jerusalem. And we pray that we would have that same kind of emotion as we take a look at that which is going on around us. Because we realize judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. God doesn't realize that you don't overlook sin and evil and wickedness wherever it exists, that someday there will be judgment. So we just pray, Lord, today that we would be people of your word, we would be people of prayer, that the church that we attend would be a church that concentrates on these things, that emphasizes and focuses in on the main things that we need to be focusing in. We're grateful and thankful for your direction, for your Holy Spirit that lives within us. So we just pray for your blessing upon us. And we pray if somebody's listening today, they do not know you as Savior, oh, may they not delay, because there is no guarantee that they're going to be given another breath to take. May they come to you today, receive you as their Savior. For we pray this all in Jesus' name, and for his sake alone. Amen.